Turn your attention to the screen. I got a couple of statements here I want you to see about the book of Romans. This epistle, referring to Romans, is the chief part. It's a big word, isn't it? Big statement. This is the chief part of the New Testament, the very purest gospel. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. Martin Luther. Chuck Swindoll said of this book letter to the Romans that it's Paul's magnum opus. It is the first systematic theology of the Christian faith. It is the believer's constitution, the Christian Magna Carta. We might even call it a manifesto of the new kingdom. For it, is not, for it not only declares our essential beliefs, it established our agenda as Christ's disciples. The letter to the Romans may be the most significant book in all the Bible. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm not even sure I'm comfortable making a statement like that. I, I, I don't know if it's appropriate to set apart, to distinguish one book of the Bible out, out from the others. But whether that's right or wrong, that kind of statement, that kind of play is given to the letter to the Romans more than any other book of the Bible. Genesis, I think it gets some play like that. Uh, the Gospel of John, the Psalms, maybe a little bit of Revelation every now and then. But folks, far and away in the mountain range of Bible books, the letter to the Romans stands as a peak. It is worthy of our time. It is worthy of our attention, of our work. Our work, our effort to get it, to understand it. And time we are going to give to it. Let me explain a little bit about how this is going to unfold, what this is going to look like. I'm going I'm to do two sermons just introducing the book. Uh, we're going to introduce it a little bit today. Today's kind of a, a feeling. We're, we're just going to get a feeling for where this letter arrived. We're getting a little feeling for Paul, for the church in Rome, for the city of Rome, and, and just what's going on when this letter is written and when it arrives at that great church. Next Sunday is Mother's Day. And, uh, and we're not going to look at Romans. I'm going to step out of Romans one week into it. And, uh, but I've got something kind of special, something uh, planned for Mother's Day. Hope you're going to be here and be a, a part of that. So we'll, we'll do that next week. And then we'll come back May 15th. And I'm going to do a second introduction. I always refer to this as a flyover. We're going to fly over the forest of Romans. And we're just going to, we're going to see the whole thing. We're, we're going to see it as a big picture. We're going to see its pieces. Then we'll come back the next week and we'll start working through Romans verse by verse. It will take no less than 50 sermons to do that. Now, just to put that in perspective, I've done three series here that have been between 25 and 28 uh, sermons long. Romans, I mean, uh, Revelation, Ephesians, and the what is. Y'all remember those? They took like forever. Okay, well, that, that was only like 25 to 28. This will take no less than 50. Now, because of its length, I'll also approach this series a little bit differently. Every now and then, I'll step out of it. You know, we might do a week or two, we'll step out and do something at Christmas, or, or maybe it might be something we introduce for the new year, or a Mother's Day. We'll step out of it at time from time to time to, to look at an individual thing. I hope somewhere here, you know, I'll, I'll take a vacation or something. And so when you start adding all this up, folks, it could easily, easily take us two years uh, before we finish uh, this book on Romans. But it, it, it's, it's worth two years. 
You know, I think probably I have hesitated from taking on the, the book of Romans just because of its length. There's, there's so much. I mean, for me, this book may be as much as any other. And if you just open it, and I really hope you start reading it and scanning through it these weeks ahead, you, every single verse is a memory verse. Every single verse can be a sermon. Uh, there's just so much there and you want to handle it rightly and appropriately. I'm excited, but even a little bit, I think I use the word scared. You know, it reminds me of, uh, there is a, a mountain peak in Colorado, uh, Long's Peak. There, there's a picture of it right there. In my parents' house, not in the plains, that's not my parents' house, by the way. Uh, it, it's up in the mountains. But uh, Long's Peak is a mountain that, that two months out of the year you can hike in a non-technical. You don't need ropes or anything. You can, you can hike it. And so uh, myself and my daughter Amy and uh, the boys, Karen and Mary Beth, not so much so. Uh, it, we want to we do this. And uh, it takes about 14 hours of hard hiking. You have to start by 3 a.m., uh, if you don't start by then, you won't make it to the top in time to turn around because uh, by 11 to 12 o'clock, everybody, wherever they are on the, on the route, has to be on their way down because they have lightning storms up there every single day and a lot of people have been killed in lightning. And so by, by 12 o'clock, you've got to be going the other direction. No matter where you are, you've got to be going the other direction back down. And so, you know, we, we want to do this. Now... You can't see, again, where we live, but it, that's 14,259 feet. Where we would start, uh, it would be about a 4,500-foot ascent. Take about eight hours to get up to the top and then five, six hours to get back down. Uh, now, I tell you all that, you're saying, what in the world does this have to do with Romans? That's my Romans right there. That, that, that's how I feel as a preacher, is that I'm standing at the base of this great mountain and excited and thrilled. You know, we, we live right near that thing. Every year, we're right near where you start. But yet, you don't go running up there and say, I'm going to do Long's Peak today. You don't do that. There, there's a timing. There's a readiness. There's a preparation to do that. Now, I wouldn't say you have to have a certain timing and a readiness to start into the book of Romans. But that's a little bit how I feel right now. Man, it's thrilling and it's exciting. Are we ready? Are we ready for this great hike, this great journey we're going to take to absolutely a theological peak in the Bible? There is a man named Gaius. Gaius is a wealthy man who lives right outside the city of Corinth. Uh, Corinth is uh, probably, uh, to talk about Gaius and Corinth would be talking like a, a wealthy man that maybe lives in the suburbs of San Francisco. Be a lot of similarities between San Francisco and Corinth. And so that's kind of when you picture of a wealthy person there, that's how you might think of Gaius. And Gaius is a, a new believer. And, and he's excited, and he's a, he's a person of, uh, of means, he's a person of resources and position, and man, he wants to use that. He wants to use that to serve the Lord, to advance the gospel. He wants to use that to, to advance the cause of the church. He, he's a mover and a shaker, and so he's looking for those opportunities. So can you imagine his excitement when he learns that Paul's going to be coming through town? And, and, and now Gaius is actually, because he's just looking for any way he can to have an impact, he's got the church meeting in his house. He's got a large house. He can handle the crowd. And so the church of Corinth is meeting in Gaius' house, and there's Paul. 
And, and, and maybe after the service one day, he goes up to Paul and he says, uh, man, Paul, I, you know, what, what can I do? How, how can I be involved? I, I, Paul, I know you're out there. I know you're a mover and a shaker. I mean, folks, Paul is, is the lead planter of churches in the Christian faith. He planted the church that's meeting in Gaius' house. Paul is the lead communicator of the Christian life. The lead communicator of the Christian faith. So, so Gaius wants to hook up with this guy. Gaius wants to partner with him. And he says, Paul, what, what can I do? How can I come alongside you and your ministry? And, and maybe Paul pauses a moment. And he says, uh, you know, Gaius, there is something I need. I, I need a place to stay. I, I'm getting ready to kind of step back here for a moment. I need to write a letter. I, I'm going to write a letter to the church in Rome. And it's going to be big. I think it's going to be beefy. I kind of sense where the Lord is leading with this. And, and it's going to take a while. And, and Gaius, when I do that, uh, I, I'm not real good at writing, you know, writing, writing things down. I, a lot of times I use a, a secretary. Somebody will take dictation. i got a good friend here, Tertius. And so really, both of us are need, going to need a place to stay, yeah, maybe for about three months. Could, could we live here in your house? Could, could, could we stay here with you as as I just kind of wait on the Lord's leadership and guidance and how He wants to, to reveal this letter to the Romans. And I imagine Gaius spent all of, oh, a whole second or two to pray about that. And say, yes, you can. <laughs> I mean, would you want Paul to live with you for a couple of months? Man, who, who wouldn't want that opportunity to, to rub shoulders with Paul? Actually have him living there with you and to watch I mean, Corinthian, the, the church in Corinth that had two letters to be able to sit there and watch one of these letters unfold as it, as it comes to life. And so Gaius says, man, yeah, you, you absolutely can, can come on board. You, you can do that. And, and so he starts to communicate that, that, man, how exciting to think I'm going to get to watch this letter to, to Rome. You know, Corinth. Corinth is a city of influence. Corinth is a large, wealthy city. Just like a, a San Francisco is a large, influential city. But, but Rome, man, that's, that's the city. That, 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 for our world today, that's New York. That's the city of the world. Rome was, was founded. Rome was established in 753 B.C., but now, 800 years later, during the time of Paul, Rome is far and away the greatest city in the world. It's a city that has a population of a million people. Now that sounds big to us, doesn't it? A million people is a lot of folks. 2,000 years ago, the population of the planet at that time, you may as well say it's a city with 30 million people. I mean, it's just that, it is unparalleled. There is nothing like it in its architecture, in its buildings, in its wealth, in its power. Rome is the center of the world. And like those kinds of cities in our day and age, if you're wealthy, if you're a part of the elite, elite that's a great place to live, isn't it? But boy, if you're poor, it's a whole other experience to live in a city like that. Over half the population of Rome was slaves. Now, when I say slaves, don't, don't think of American slavery. Uh, that institution of slavery was a, a whole other kind of thing. There was educated that were slaves. There were doctors uh, that were slaves, lawyers that were slaves. It was a whole different kind of setup, but they were slaves. That, that they were people that were enslaved. Over half the population is slaves or recently freed slaves. It, it's a city uh, that is dangerous. High, high crime rate. It's a filthy city. 
Rome was one of the first cities to build high-rise apartments. First cities. Now, when we say high-rise, we're talking about five or six stories, which 2,000 years ago was a big deal. Now, here's what made it so filthy. Only the first floor had running water. Only the first floor had any kind of sewage system. And when I say sewage system, just throw out the word system. (laughs) Only the first floor had any kind of way of dealing with sewage. And it would have been, by our standards, filthy. But if you're living, imagine the population that is living on a second floor, a third floor, a fourth floor. Guess where your water and sewage went? Right out the window. It was an absolutely filthy, dangerous place to live. And and to survive in a place like this, people broke up into their ethnic groups. That's where safety was. That's where security was. And so first century Rome would have looked much of like what we think of an 18th, 19th century, well, really even today, New York City that has all of its ethnic neighborhoods. The Little Italy, the Little China, the, the Polish area. And, and these areas, they, they kind of have their own governmental system, their, their own power system, and they warred between each other for dominance, for, for position, for place. Now, I mention all that to say this. In this day and age, in this culture, to become a Christian, often you were cut off. You'd be cut off from family, you'd be cut off from friends. And that was just a bigger issue than being rejected by loved ones and friends. That was a bigger issue than just feeling alone in the world. You were cut off from any sense of safety, any sense of security in your world. And yet it is in this kind of environment, it is with all this going on, that one of the greatest churches in the New Testament was born. Listen to what Paul says about the church in Rome. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Listen to this. Because the news of your faith is being reported all over the world. Listen to chapter 16, verse 19. The report of your obedience has reached everyone. Folks, what kind of faith, what kind of obedience is a church demonstrating that they're not only talking about it down in Dinwiddie, they're they're not only talking about it up in northern Virginia, they're talking about it all over the world. The whole world is talking about the faith and obedience of this church. What does that look like? Do we even want to know? I know this, the faith and obedience of that church was there in a way that it never measured the cost. There was a cost to being a Christian in Rome. And they didn't measure it. And it wasn't just the different issues, living in the danger, living in the crime, living in a world that would have cut them off. There was also the governmental, there was also the the political pressure that they were dealing with. In, In AD 41, Emperor Claudius is in power, and and he does something a little bit new in Rome. Rome is a place that was, as big cities are, a little bit more liberal in nature. And and so it it was all for free thinking and philosophies and religions and gods. Bring them all on. But but Claudius comes along and he says, I'm going to outlaw this. And he outlaws proselytizing. He outlaws evangelization. Well, guess what Christians are real into? Should be real into Man, we're real into telling our neighbor, aren't we? Well, Claudius gets a little put out with this. And watch this. He doesn't just kick the Christians out. He kicks the Jews out of Rome. 
You say, Jews, how'd they get wrapped up into this? In our day and age, there's a, there's a real clear distinction between Jew and Christian, isn't there? I mean, you know, we're seen as cousins. You know, the Judeo-Christian faith, we're, we're seen as relating. But there's a clear distinction. In this world, there wasn't. Remember, Jesus was a what? He was a Jew. A lot of these early believers are Jews. And they never thought of themselves as leaving the Jewish faith. They were just this small subset, this, this small sect inside of, uh, of Judaism. Well, the secular world looked at it the same way. And so now, because of the Christians evangelizing their neighbors, all of them and the Jews are getting kicked out of Rome. That'll make you real popular, by the way. When you lose your home and you lose your business, not because of something you're doing, but these Christians who you really didn't care for anyway, they're evangelizing. Well, that goes on for a while, and then Nero comes into power. A lot of y'all probably familiar with his name. And Nero lets all the Christians, lets all the Jews back into Rome. He kind of opens it up again. But can you imagine if you're a Christian and you're coming back in and trying to establish your household, trying to establish a business? Can you imagine the pressure you're feeling from the Jews? You know, could you just like shut up this time? You know, I don't want to lose my house again. I don't want to lose my business again. And of course, that's not just external pressure. I mean, you'd feel that inside yourself, wouldn't you? I mean, I want to be a witness. I want to follow Christ faithfully, but I don't want, I don't want to lose my home. I don't, want to, I don't want to lose my business. Now, how they worked this out really didn't matter because it wasn't much longer before Nero went, nut, Nero went nuts. He, he went insane. And as a great part of his insanity, the Christians got the sharp end of his insane stick. Uh, and he turned incredibly, I mean, on historical proportions, absolutely brutal toward the Christians. Now, Christians had no friends in Rome at all. But history says that even the, the common person living in Rome began to feel pity for the Christians because of how brutally they were being treated by Nero. Now, folks, everything I just described, all the way back to me saying there was a million people in Rome, this has all kind of taken place between A.D. 41 and, and A.D. 68, A.D. 70. Well, this letter to the Romans is going to land there about A.D. 57. So it, everything I just described, this church is right in the middle of it. This letter is coming right in the middle of all of this going on. And Paul was impressed with this church by the, by the two verses that we've already seen, that we've already read. He really thought, man, this is an awesome church. And he wanted to develop a relationship. Maybe he was kind of starting to think west and see Rome as a, a new base of operations for him. And he wants to establish a, a relationship with the church. He never visited it. He didn't found it, which <laughs> he had found most churches. So it's kind of a big deal when you say Paul didn't start this church. So he didn't start it. He hadn't visited. He did have relationships with people in the church. As a matter of fact, if you were in chapter 16, you'll see 26 individual names. Most, most names he ever mentions in any letter. He mentions 26 names of leaders, of individuals there in the church that he knows. There are people that he was in prison with. For sharing the gospel. There's people that he ministered with in other parts of the empire. There's people there that were the product, that were the fruit of his ministry. And so while he has no relationship 
with this church. Imagine maybe somebody's coming here to Colonial Heights Baptist and, and the, the whole of us, this person's never been here and we don't know them, but they, they write and they start mentioning names. Well, you know, I know that guy in your church and I, and I know your chairman of deacons and I, and I know that staff member and I know, and he starts, hey, this guy really knows us and we start to develop a relationship. And again, as, as Paul's coming to Rome, he's thinking even further out. He wants to move on even further west to Spain. As a matter of fact, he tells them this in Romans 15. He says in verse 23, But now I no longer have any work to do in these provinces, and I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. For I do hope to see you when I pass through and to be sent on my way there by you. It's referring to a partnership. I I hope I'm going to be sent on to Spain by you, by your hand, by your prayers. Once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. You know, Paul had, if you read the, the back half of Acts, Paul had been on three missionary journeys. But those missionary journeys are in the eastern half of the Roman Empire. And he went from city to city to city, establishing churches, discipling believers. Antioch, some of y'all might remember that name from Acts. Antioch was his base of operations there. Antioch was the first city where people were called Christians. That's the first place that word was used. But as you can hear him, he's sensing that when he says all the work is done, folks, the work's not done until Jesus returns, right? Okay, what he's saying is, I'm sensing that, that my work What I'm supposed to be doing in this part of the world is done. And God's giving me an eye. God's giving me a vision to move out west. And I see myself coming through Rome, maybe that being the new base. And I want to get to Spain. You know, folks, that amazes me to hear Paul like that. To hear his passion, his desire to see the gospel go somewhere it has not been. To be the person who carries it there. You know, if there was anybody that could ever say, you know, I've done my part. <laughs> you, you know, I'm ready to hand off the baton here. You know, Paul says in, in his letter to the Corinthians, remember, he's in Corinth. That's where he's writing this letter. He's there living in Gaius' house. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, listen to this. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the depths of the sea. On frequent journeys, I face dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, and he wants to go to Rome, dangers in the open country, and he's traveling to Spain, dangers on the sea, and dangers from false brothers, labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and lacking clothing. Not to mention other things, there is the daily pressure on me, my care for all the churches. And Paul's paid the price, hadn't he? You know, imagine Gaius again. Paul's living with him. So, so, you know, Gaius has a chance for three months to watch Paul wake up every morning. For a guy who has endured what Paul has endured, how long do you think it takes him to wake up? How long do you think it takes him to get that body kind of all moving in the same direction? You know, folks, I just read through that list pretty clearly, but you realize he's got wounds that have never healed. He's got bones that were broke that that never straightened back upright. He has got to be scarred from head to toe. 
Honestly, I would imagine that Paul has to be absolutely hideous to look at. He has got to be, he's got to be the kind of person you'd almost turn and look the other way. And he has endured every bit of that for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So imagine Gaius, you're getting the coffee ready. You're, you're looking at Paul and Tertius there in the sunroom and they've kind of gotten the morning going and, and he's looking at Paul's body and what Paul has endured for the gospel and he hears Paul dictating to Tertius. He hears Paul saying this, but how can they call on him whom they have not believed? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how welcome are the feet of those who announce the gospel of good things. After all that Paul has been through, after all that he has endured, after the price he has paid, he is still saying, let it be my feet. Let my feet carry the gospel to that place that it has never been. Can you imagine if Gaius, as he looks at his body, as he listens to what is being said? What does he hear? What does he see in Paul's life? Folks, as we get ready to start this great book, we're going to hear Paul's heart. We're going to see his passion. Some have said that the, the theme, the passion of this letter to the Romans is the theme and the passion of Paul's life. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. You know what? You have a right to say that, don't you, when you've been stoned for it. You've got a right to say that when you've been imprisoned. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is God's power. It's God's power to save people, to rescue people from, from sin and death and hell, from meaninglessness, from lifelessness. It rescues people. Anyone, everyone who will believe. The Jew first, the Greek. The, the Greek's another word for the rest of the world. To everyone who believes. For in that gospel, in that power, the righteousness of God is revealed. That righteousness that we begin, that we come into by faith. That righteousness that we live, that we journey by faith. That righteousness that we end by faith. For just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The letter of Romans is about righteousness. Our need for it. The trouble we're in without it. How we come into it. How we live it. All that it can mean to our life. And folks, that righteousness changed Paul. And he never got over it. Paul was a man of the law. A man of religion. And so often, like we see religion doing, Paul used the law, Paul used religion to beat people up. To manipulate. To control. Until he met Jesus. And his life became about grace and faith. His life became about the, the righteousness of God. Folks, as we stand at the base of this book of righteousness, as we're about to ascend this great mountain, 
And I've been praying, God, I want to see three things. This isn't three points of Romans, but it's three things I want to find in the letter to the Romans. Three things I want to see happen in my life. Three things I want to see happen in our church. I want to see us come into a faith and an obedience that would be a model, an encouragement, and a challenge to the churches of the world. Does that sound right to say that? Is that, a, is that a good goal? Is that appropriate? That we would be a church that the entire world would look at to see what faith and obedience looks like? Why not us? God, would you do that in my life? I want to see a gospel mentality. I want God to produce a gospel mentality in my life, in our church like Paul's, that is constantly saying, where's the next person? Where's the next place? No matter what the cost is to me. Folks, I want to see like Paul the righteousness of God revealed in a way that I never get over it. In a way that, that we never get over it. The book of Romans will take us to the peak of theological discussion and understanding. But it will always carry us right back down to the plains where we live. Because what we're going to see is that while the gospel of Jesus Christ is great facts, great truths to be researched, to be studied, to be understood and believed, the gospel is also a life to be lived. Let's pray. Father, we come before You this morning and we dedicate ourselves to You. We dedicate our commitment to study the letter of Romans. God, we dedicate our mind. We we, we want to make effort. We want to study. We want to research. We want to understand. God, we want to memorize. Oh God, what would it be like if two years from now, every one of us has two, three verses memorized in every single chapter of this letter to Romans. But Lord, we also want to dedicate our heart. Because we want to take all that will be up there in our mind about this great letter. We want it to transfer to our love and to our passions. God, would you guide me to carefully, to accurately study Guide me to carefully and accurately communicate the great truths that you revealed in this book. And God, we just yield this church, we yield our lives to you, and our prayer is at the end of this study, 2012, 2013, God, would you do something through this study that will leave us changed forever? Whether we're a brand new believer, whether we're a long time mature believer, whether we're sitting in here today and we're not even a believer, use this great study to bring our lives and to bring this church to being like those folks in Rome, to being like Paul. You said there's no price that is too great to pay to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray.
Amen.